that better. Just before Martin comes to speak to us, I'm going to share the reading, which is from John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and beginning at the start of the chapter. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went and got out into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Thank you, Steve.
Good morning, everybody. Uh, so, we reached the, um, the fourth in this four-week series on the character, on the characteristics of God, who he is, or what's he like. When uh, Stephen asked me if I would like to help with this series, he said to me, um, well, which of the four G's there would I like to speak on? His greatness, goodness, his glory, or his graciousness, or his, his grace. And, the re- and I knew what I wanted to speak on in, in two seconds flat. <laughs> I knew that I would choose grace. I just did. It's, and the reasons for that are really very simple, straightforward, and personally powerfully and deeply meaningful. Twenty years ago, nearly, I encountered the grace of God for myself here in this church, in this congregation. A love that I can say to you without a shadow of a doubt knows no bounds, makes no set demands, sets no preconditions, always welcomes, always sustains, never lets go, is always listening, caring, nourishing, and building one up, building me up when I need it. A grace-filled love that wants the very best for me and for you. And it's this self-same grace that I know that is here for all. For all of you, for all of our families, our friends, the nation, the world, all of humanity, through all of time. It's a love that is so deep, it's so wide, we can't actually fully describe it, no matter how hard we try. We can't go beyond it. And we can't lose it. Never, God never lets go. That song we sing so often says that amazing thing. And it repeats it and repeats it and repeats it in that song. And I am delighted that it does repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Because we need to keep that in our minds. We might turn away. We might disregard God's love. We might at times even shun it, forget it. But it never goes away. Because God's grace is not dependent on what we do. It is the consequence of what God has already done in Christ for everyone. And as I'm sure you can tell, already... I don't really have anything radically new to say or to share this morning about the grace of God. I expect you're going to get tired by the end of the morning because you're going to be going, mm, 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 mm. But that doesn't diminish the power of this abiding truth. The grace of God is fundamental to what we as a congregation believe. It always has been 
and I pray it always will be. In 1997, Steve was in the midst of a season, an extended season, teaching on the grace of God when I first came here and sat at the back in tears. As a young man, I had been brought up in a church setting which taught that adherence to religious observances and rules, days of obligation, the need to continually seek forgiveness for my daily sinfulness with the guilt that such an emphasis every day then loads upon you. The authority of church and its doctrine and the nature of God's judgment. Now, as a result, the God I knew, or shall I say, I thought I knew, was distant and judgmental, and he needed to be appeased, that's probably the right word to use at the time, through the repetitions of church ritual and set prayers. That was my upbringing. Yours may be very different. I don't know. But that was mine. And what I found when I walked through the door that very first Sunday was the self-same scriptures illuminated in the light of love and grace. Where God's heart to reconcile us, his desire for restoration, his profound love completely overwhelmed me. It sort of washed me away. And it washed away that sense of inadequacy, a sense of guilt, and sense of failure. Grace had indeed brought me home, in those words of that song we've just sung. Grace brought me home. And that's why the story of the prodigal son, and even more so, within the life of Peter, has always resonated powerfully with me ever since. I think it's no casual coincidence that my middle name is Peter. I was christened Peter by my parents, Martin Peter. And the story of Peter's failure on the night of the Last Supper... And then there was clearly a period of darkness and doubt. And then that startling and beautiful moment. Is this going to work? If I turn it on, it might. On the beach. Where he explores that threefold restoration. After breakfast on the beach. And... I can't get the image of that little fire on a beach out of my head sometimes. And the the fish already cooking. There are so many little paradoxes in that story. Like, the net was full of fish and they couldn't get it out of the water. Peter gets to the shore on his own and he gets there and Jesus has already got the fish cooked. Hmm, that's interesting. But then he still says, well, go and get some more. And Peter belts down the beach, climbs aboard the boat. He's the only one able to drag this net in, drags them in, counts them all, 153 for some peculiar reason. I've never fathomed that one. Someone more learned might one day do a sermon on why 153. And they obviously cook some more. So you think, 
Why? Well, what's all that about? You could spend a long time thinking about the story of the picnic on the beach. But it's, it's that reconciliation that's in that meal and in the conversation that Jesus has with Peter afterwards. And it makes my heart sing. Now, I don't doubt that many of you have similar tales to tell of coming home to Christ, of experiencing that joy of reconciliation and homecoming. Moments in your life when everything seemed dark and lost, when you had nowhere else to turn, you had no more strength to keep on going on, and at that moment you encounter love, the love of God. You may have encountered it directly in times of quiet reflection and prayer at the hard times. You may have met the love of God in the kindness of others around you, where they, unknowingly probably, become the hands and feet of Christ. We are made in his image, after all. There's a phrase, it's traditionally attributed to St. Augustine, that I expect many of you know. It says these words about scripture. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed. And I feel that this saying applies especially to the grace, the graciousness of God. In my NIV Bible, the words grace or gracious appear 130 times. I haven't counted them, I looked it up, okay? So I didn't go to the Bible and count, but I was researching the whole theme, and this is one of those little thoughts that bubbles out of your research. You think, oh, that's really intriguing. But even more interesting, only eight of those 130 occurrences are in the Old Testament. The other 122 are in the New. Why such an imbalance? It can't just be that the Old Testament's thicker than the New. I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is that the nature and the person of God in Christ contains the grace of God. And the New Testament is the Christian message, the message of grace. It is in Christ that grace is fully Revealed. In the Old Testament, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then of Moses and the prophets, is a covenant God. He's a God of true, rock-solid promises and undertakings. But it's seen through a culture of atonement, of sacrifice, and temple worship. One God, as Richard said several times last Sunday, immortal, invisible, God only wise. All-powerful, eternally faithful, and yet at the same time, so often, a God of wrath, of justice, perfect justice, but justice all the same, of greatness, of power, and glory. A God to be feared, perhaps. A God whose very presence could not be endured. A God, though he dwelt in a temple, 
in the midst of his people could only be approached by the highest of the high priests once a year to make a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people through the sprinkling of the blood of a bull or a goat. That's the God of the Old Testament. In contrast, in the New Testament, we meet the person of God made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, no longer hidden, who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. John writes in his first chapter, chapter 1, verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Some translations say, blessing upon blessing. And again in 117, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So there's this counterbalancing. It's not that the Old Testament is wrong, it's that it's partial. And what we see in Christ is God fully revealed to us. And this is the God that I've come to know. It's the, God, it's the God I love, I try to honor, and worship. It's the God who changed my life around, and whom I've known and been thrilled to serve for 20 years or so. And it's the God that I deeply want others to know about. I am very, very delighted about the church approach to Alpha this year. It, 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 is a, it is a unique occasion for us as a church to do things as a whole church together and to explore with our friends that we can bring this God. This God. And I would really urge everybody, if you haven't already decided to come, please Move things out of the way so that you can come. And sign that piece of paper and invite some people. And don't be, as we've been encouraged before, don't be worried that people are going to turn you down. They may do, but keep asking all the same. Keep asking all the same. And God knows who will be, who's going to be here. He knows already who's going to be in these, this room that first Wednesday, that first Thursday. And he knows how their hearts are going to be affected by that message. That doesn't mean we're useless. We're his hands and feet. We're his voice. Go and invite. Let's change the subject a moment. I talked about the number of times grace and graciousness is in the Bible. Um, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Thirteen of them are written by Paul, his letters. The letters that he wrote as he crisscrossed the Roman Empire, planting churches as he went. Running alpha courses in city after city after city is the way you could think about it. That's what he was doing. And in the thirteen letters, the word grace and gracious, those two words again, of which there are 122 in the New Testament, 85 of them are in his letters. 
I thought more would be in the Gospels, but they're not. They're actually in his letters as he talks about him. And therefore it's not unreasonable to label Paul as an apostle or the apostle of grace. It's surprising, isn't it? I don't know about you. Um, Paul can often seem a rather prickly person, rather demanding. He didn't seem to suffer fools very gladly. And yet his writings portray the truth that he was a man who had encountered the grace of God for himself. If you cast your mind back to the extended series we had on the first letter to the church in Corinth, casting your mind back a few weeks on sermons is really difficult, isn't it? You think, ooh, I'm sure I can do that. It's flowed under the bridge and gone down the river. <laughs> okay. And in the first letter to the church at Corinth, in chapter 15, verse 9, Paul writes these words. I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And then he writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. And then in typical Pauline style, he says, No, I worked harder than all of them. And then he adds, Yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. See, Paul had been changed, hadn't he? He'd been changed from a cold-hearted, and I think it's fair to say a ruthless Pharisee, who saw as his calling the exterminating of an heretical Jewish sect called the Way. Through that encounter on the road to Damascus, where he was going to arrest and execute even more believers... And he was changed in that encounter into the greatest advocate for the grace of God probably the world has ever known. In his letter written to the church at Ephesus, hence its title Ephesians, we read in chapter 2, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. And then to make sure that we didn't miss the point, he writes three or four, three or four lines later on the same sentence, same phrase. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this not from ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So none can boast. And I think here, in those few words, is a description of the foundational nature of the grace of God. His heart is to give to all of mankind the free gift of saving grace in Christ his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. The message of grace. And although in the Old Testament you rarely hear 
those words, you can still see, if you read carefully, with a mindset of where is the grace of God in the Old Testament, you can see it in the words, but you have to sort of listen out for it. You have to, be, you have to open your ears wide, if you like, and listen for those subtle messages of grace. King David, thousands of years before, wrote many of the Psalms. In Psalm 103, he wrote these words. And just listen with the mindset of the grace of God to these words. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David without knowing, he couldn't possibly know, is writing about Christ. And that's the wonder of the continuity of the, new and the, of the Old and the New Testament. Although they, have different, they illuminate different aspects of God, it's one continuous message. And we need to just see it in the words. And then to go from David or Paul... I'm going to quote Jimmy Cricket. There's more. There's more. He used to wear wellies, didn't he? He used to wear wellies. There's more. There's more. God's gracious gift. Jimmy Cricket wasn't talking about this. Doesn't end with our salvation, does it? It doesn't end with that moment of coming to faith, that time in our life when we come to really know how much God loves us. That isn't the end. That isn't the terminus. That's like a new beginning. You know, it can often be said that although we can accept the free gift of grace, we have this habit as human beings to then start to live our lives that in some way we need to earn our continued acceptance of God, by God. That in some way, we need to keep the rules now to stay in God's favour. When that happens, faith becomes a duty. And duty is a hard taskmaster. Why? Because such a belief about God is false. God's acceptance of us his goodness and his graciousness towards us doesn't depend on what we do. It doesn't. It is just the same free gift as the day we first encounter it. Paul makes this point when he writes to the church in Galatia. He calls them, You foolish Galatians, he puts it. Stupid people! Would, I would like to ask you, he says, one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law 
or by believing what you heard. Are you so stupid, or foolish is his word, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? He's sort of going, at them. Why? Because he knew the fullness of God's grace. He knows that God's attitude towards us doesn't fluctuate, depending on how we're behaving at any particular moment. His love does not increase or decrease according to how much time we spend in prayer, how often we read the Bible. Whether you come to church, whether you listen to the sermon or go and watch Veggie Tales, it doesn't make any difference at all to God's attitude toward us. He doesn't love us any more when we are good. He doesn't love us any less when we are bad. His approval, affection, and love are constant because they are full, complete, brimming over. They can't be any more constant. They can't be any more full. They can't be any more complete or any more eternal because they are based, God's love is based on Christ's finished work, not us. God's love every day is a free gift. And it doesn't depend on our being worthy in some way to receive it. And I think, if we actually are honest about it, we probably all have some of a hard, something of a hard time accepting that idea. What you mean, if, if, I'm, if I fail, if I don't read my Bible, if I don't come to church, if I make the same mistakes over and over again, God still loves me the same? doesn't make sense. I think deep down, we still sort of have the idea that God ought to like us more when we're good. Yeah? Sounds makes sense, doesn't it? Why? Why is that? I think the reason it is in us like that is that every other relationship we have with, with which we are deeply familiar, it works that way. Husbands, wives, parents, children, friends, fellow church members, we love one another imperfectly. People being what we are, they, we usually make some sort of connection between how we treat someone and how they treat us. And how we feel about somebody, about in the way it, it reflects the, what they do and how they are. I'm sure you can all think of times when people close to you disappoint you. Sometimes very deeply. And at those times, what do we do? We, na- we can't almost stop it. We draw back a little. We, like a snail into a shell. We recoil. Our relationship might go cold for a while. And we might have to make an effort to to restart. I'm sure you can remember times when you, I, we, have offended those around us. People close to us. 
And we see them then distance themselves from us. It happens all the time. It's our frail and imperfect human nature. But God isn't like that. And that's why we have such a hard time, I think, adjusting to this, keeping this in us. So let me repeat. He doesn't love us more or less depending on whether you please him or not. He always loves you utterly, completely, unconditionally. You know, God's love for you wasn't motivated by your qualities in the first place. And it won't cause him to withdraw his love now. So, there we are. Nothing new, really. But I hope it's helpful to revisit the power of that message. Grace is foundational to the nature of God. It's perfectly visible in the person of Christ. And the work of Christ on the cross is the perfect, the ultimate act of grace. We receive the gift free and unmerited. And we cannot lose it. The grace of God. And it's all really I have to commend. Nothing else. So, it's my hope and prayer that if you've been feeling unsure of where you are with God now, in recent weeks or months, maybe longer, if you've not been sure about that, can I encourage you with the message of today? You are always permanently and deeply loved. All of you. And if you're sitting here thinking, I don't think I've ever really chosen to accept the gift of grace, to say yes to God, can I say today is a very good day to do it? All you need to do is say, yes, please. Yes, Lord. I really, really want to rely on you. I'm going to pray for both those things now. And if you'd like to join me quietly within your own thoughts and prayers, maybe for people that you know, that you've spoken to about the message of Christ and his grace, and who've always, up till now, said, don't want to know. Draw them into your mind. Hold them before God in this next minute or two. Simon, if you could come back and with the band and be, and be ready... And um, we'll, we'll, after I've prayed this prayer, we'll have our closing uh, worship time. So let's just pray while the band get ready. Say, so think, think about yourself and think about those you love who don't know him. Or maybe people who came to church with you at one time and who no longer do, who are distant and far away. Think of them. Hold them in your spiritual heart before God. Lord, thank you that Christ is grace in the flesh. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and graciousness to us 
the free gift of your love through all of eternity for all of mankind. Lord, we pray that we know afresh the abiding, the abounding love of God. And we pray for those we know and that we love, that they too would draw close to you if they are far away and would say yes to you if they have never done so. And for those who are sitting here today, who hear this message but have never actually made that little step of, yes, Lord, I'm here. Lord, we now pray that this is their moment before you. May they feel your abiding and abounding love within them. May they know your spirit rise within them. May, they, may this be the day that they are truly born again into your grace and your goodness, your greatness, your glory. Amen. Thank you, Simon.